Section 20 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 10, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mary the Second, Chapter 2, Part 2. Meantime, the conduct of the Princess of Orange's Maids of Honor at The Hague caused no little surprise. In whatsoever court of Europe, their proceedings were reported. They certainly took extraordinary liberties, if the description of their friend, Mr. Sidney, may be trusted. The princess's maids are a great comfort to me, wrote Sidney to Hyde. On Sunday they invited me to dinner. Pray let Mrs. Fraser know that the maids of the Princess of Orange entertain foreign ministers, which is more, I think, than any of the queens do. It was to the conduct of these very hospitable damsels, that the fluctuating health and early troubles of the Princess of Orange may be attributed. The preference which the Prince of Orange manifested for Elizabeth Villiers was the canker of the princess's peace, from her marriage to the grave. This connection, however scandalous it may be, is not matter of slander, but a documentary history. Scandal, likewise, involved his name very shamefully with that of her sister, Anne Villiers, after she was Madame Bentinckt. Altogether, it may be judged how strong were the meshes woven round the poor princess by this family clique. These companions of the princess's youth naturally possessed in themselves the species of authoritative influence over her mind, which they derived from being the daughters of her governess, all somewhat older than herself. When it is remembered that the head of the clique was the mistress of her husband, and that the next in age and influence became the wife of his favorite minister of state, the case of Mary of England seems sufficiently pitiable. When she married William of Orange, her age was not sixteen years. He was twenty-seven, and her bold rival was nineteen or twenty, or perhaps older. A dread of insult soon produced in the mind of the princess that close reserve and retreat within herself, which, even after her spirit was utterly broken, often perplexed her astute husband, at a time when their views and feelings regarding the deposition of her father were unanimous. A diplomatist became resident at The Hague after the peace with France of 1678, whose dispatches to his own court contained some intelligence concerning the domestic life led by the Princess of Orange and her husband. This person was the Marquis de Vau, ambassador from Louis Fourteenth not exactly to the Prince of Orange, but to the States of Holland. The oddest stories are afloat relative to this official and the Princess of Orange. One written by Sidney to Sir Leoline Jenkins is as follows. All the discourse we have here, December 3rd, 1680, is of what happened a Wednesday night at court. The French ambassador had, in the morning, sent word to Monsieur O'Dyke, one of the officials in the household of the Princess that he intended waiting on the princess that evening. He, that is O'Dyke, forgot to give notice of it, so that the princess sat down, as she uses to do, about eight o'clock, to play at La Bessette. This was a game at cards, played with a bank, in vogue through all the courts of Europe. Vast sums were lost and won at Bessette, and royal personages sat down to play at it, with as rigorous forms of etiquette, as if it had been a solemn duty. A quarter of an hour after the princess had commenced her game, the French ambassador came in. She rose and asked him if he would play. He made no answer, and she sat down again. 
when the ambassador looking about saw a chair with arms in the corner which he drew for himself and sat down after he had sat a little while he rose and went to the table to play the prince of orange came in and did also seat him to play rational people will suppose so far that there was no great harm done on either side according to strict etiquette as the announcement had been sent of the visit of the ambassador de Val, the beset table should not have been set till his arrival and it would be supposed that a five minutes lounge in an armchair opportunely discovered in a corner was no very outrageous atonement for the neglected dignity of the representative of louis the fourteenth but alas armchairs in those days were movables of consequence portentous of war or peace Next day, Sidney added, the French ambassador told his friends confidentially that his behavior was not to be wondered at, for he had positive orders from his master, Louis the Fourteenth, that whensoever the princess sat in a great armchair, he should do so too, and that if there was but one in the room, he should endeavor to take it from the princess and sit in it himself. This climax of the letter is, we verily believe, a romout of Henry Sidney's own compounding, for the purpose of mystifying the credulity of that most harmless man, Sir Leoline Jenkins, hoping that he would go gossiping with this important nothing to the Duke of York, who would forthwith vindicate his daughter by resenting an offense never dreamed of by that politest of mortals, Louis the Fourteenth. Thus a small matter of mischief might be fomented between the courts of England and France for the benefit of that of Orange. Louis the Fourteenth, it is well known, considered that homage was due to the fairer sex, even in the lowest degree. For if he met his own housemaids in his palace, he never passed them without touching his hat. Was it credible that he could direct his ambassador, the representative of his own polite person, to take away an armchair, by fraud or force, from a princess, and sit in it himself in her presence? And Mary was not only a princess, but a young and pretty woman, and cousin withal, but one degree removed, to his own sacred self. Sir Leoline Jenkins might believe the report, but probability rejects it. If Sir Leoline Jenkins had been ambassador to the court of Holland in an age less diabolical, his veneration and honest loyalty would not have impaired his character for sagacity. He had risen from the lowly estate of a charity boy, by his learning and integrity, to a high situation in the ecclesiastical courts. He belonged to the Reformed Catholic Church of England, and had old-fashioned ideas of devoting to the poor proportionate sums in good works, according to his prosperity. Moreover, he kept himself from presumptuous sins by hanging on high in his stately mansion, in daily sight of himself and his guests, the veritable leathern garments in which he had trudged from Wales to London, a poor wayfaring orphan with two groats in his pocket. On the warm affections of a person so primitive, the Prince of Orange and his tool, Sidney, played most shamefully in their letters. The phlegmatic prince grew warm and enthusiastic in his filial expressions towards the Duke of York when writing to the old man. I am obliged to you, wrote William to Sir Leoline for continuing to inform me of what passes in England, but I am grieved to learn with what animosity they proceed against the Duke of York. God bless him, and grant that the King and his Parliament may agree.
how could the old servant of the english royal family believe that the dissensions in england and the animosity so tenderly lamented were at the same time fostered by the writer of this filial effusion which looks especially ugly and deceitful surrounded as it is by documents proving that the prince of orange should either have left off his intrigues against his uncle and father-in-law or have been less fervent in his benedictions but these benedictions were to deceive the old loyalist into believing that when he wrote intelligence to the prince he was writing to his master's friend and affectionate son the extraordinary conduct of the maids of honor of the princess of orange has been previously shown they gave parties of pleasure to the ministers of sovereigns resident at the hague at which the political intrigant elizabeth villiers reaped harvests of intelligence for the use of her employer the prince of orange to whom these ambassadors were not sent but to the states of holland these damsels therefore were spies who reported to the prince what the ambassadors meant to transact with the states and these services were considered valuable by a crooked politician Anne villiers affairs prospered at these orgies for she obtained the hand of the favorite minister of the prince of orange at some period between sixteen seventy nine and sixteen eighty five but mary worth the colleague of this sisterhood was involved in grievous disgrace which occasioned serious trouble to the princess the reputation of this girl had been compromised by the attentions of count zulestein a near relative by illegitimate descent of the prince of orange and one of his favorites although zulestein had given mary worth a solemn promise of marriage he perfidiously refused to fulfill it and was encouraged in his cruelty by the prince his master the princess was grieved for the sufferings of her wretched attendant but she dared not interfere farther than consulting her almoner dr ken on this exigence and here it is necessary to interpolate that a third change had taken place in the head of the church of england chapel at the hague the prince of orange being exceedingly inimical to dr hooper he had resigned and dr ken in sixteen seventy nine accepted this uneasy preferment out of early affection and personal regard for the princess and in hopes of inducing her to adhere to the principles of the church of england without swerving to the practice of the dutch dissenters who exaggerated the fatalism of their founder and repudiated all rights with rigor the only creed to which the prince of orange vouchsafed the least attention was that of the brownists who united with their fatalist doctrines a certain degree of socianism the princess of orange it has been shown before the arrival of dr hooper had been induced to attend the worship of this sect to the great grief of the divines of the church of england dr ken prevailed on the princess to remain steady to the faith in which she had been baptized he was in consequence detested by the prince of orange still more than his predecessor the prince saw withal that he was the last person to gloss over his ill-treatment of his wife when the princess consulted dr ken regarding the calamitous case of the frail mary worth he immediately without caring for the anticipated wrath of the prince of orange sought an interview with count zulestein and represented to him the turpitude and cruelty of his conduct to the unfortunate girl in such moving terms that zulestein who though profligate was not altogether reprobate at the end of the exhortation became penitent and requested the apostolic man to marry him to mary as soon as he pleased 
A few days afterwards, the Prince of Orange went on business to Amsterdam. The princess then called all the parties concerned about her, and Dr. Ken married the lovers, Zulestein and Mary Worth, in her chapel. The rage of the prince on his return, when he found his favorite kinsman fast bound in marriage, without possibility of retracting, was excessive. He scolded and stormed at the princess, and railed violently at Dr. Ken, who told him he was desirous of leaving his court and returning to England. The tears and entreaties of the princess, who begged Dr. Ken not to desert her, gave a more serious turn to the affair than the prince liked, who, at last, alarmed at the effect the quarrel might have in England, joined with her in entreating Ken to stay with her another year. Dr. Ken reluctantly complied. He was thoroughly impatient of witnessing the ill-treatment he saw the princess suffer, nor could he withhold remonstrance. Dr. Ken was with me, wrote Sidney in his journal of March the 21st, 1680. He is horribly unsatisfied with the Prince of Orange. He thinks he is not kind to his wife, and he is determined to speak to him about it, even if he kicks him out of doors. Again, about a month afterwards, the journal notes, Sir Gabriel Silvius and Dr. Ken were both here, and both complained of the prince, especially of his usage of his wife. They think she is sensible of it, and that it doth greatly contribute to her illness. They are mightily for her going to England, but they think he will never consent. Sidney being an agent and favorite of the Prince of Orange, it is not probable that he exaggerated his ill conduct. And as for Sir Gabriel Silvius, he was one of his own Dutchmen, who had married a young lady of the Howard family, a ward of Evelyn, at the time of the wedlock of the Prince and Princess of Orange. Lady Anne Silvius soon after followed the princess to Holland and became one of her principal ladies. King Charles II gave Lady Anne Silvius the privilege and rank of an earl's daughter, as she was granddaughter to the Earl of Berkshire. She was extremely attached to the royal family of Great Britain, in which the good Dutchman, her elderly but most loving spouse, participated. He seems to have been a primitive character of the class of Sir Leoline Jenkins, his contemporary. In the paucity of events to vary the stagnation of existence in which the young beautiful Mary of England was doomed to mope away the flower of her days in Holland, the circumstance of her laying the first stone of William's new brick palace at Loo afforded her some little opportunity of enacting her part in the drama of royalty, that part which nature had so eminently fitted her to perform with grace and majesty. The erection of this palace, the decorations, together with the laying out the extensive gardens and pleasure grounds, afforded Mary some amusement and occupation, and memories of her were long recalled by the names of things pertaining to her in this, her husband's favorite abode. On the east side were the apartments devoted to her use, since called the Queen's Suite, although she never went to Holland after her accession to the British crowns. Under the windows of these were her garden, with a noble fountain in the center called the Queen's Garden. This garden led into another, with a labyrinth, adorned with many statues. Behind the palace, she had her volaray, or poultry garden, from which it appears she beguiled her dullness in Holland, by rearing various kinds of fowls, especially those of the aquatic species, for which the canals and tanks of Loo were so well fitted. Beyond the park was the viver, a large quadrangular pond, 
which supplied all the fountains, jets, and cascades that adorned the gardens. Near this was the Garden of Fawns, with divers pleasant long green walks, and west of the river was situated a fine grove for solitude, where Mary occasionally walked, since called in memory of her, the Queen's Grove. William had also his wing of the palace, opening into his private pleasance and his voliere. It was to render it more like this Dutch palace, that Hampton Court, the royal abode of the Tudor and Stuart sovereigns, was disfigured and pulled to pieces to decorate Lou. William is accused of plundering Windsor of some of the pictures with which the fine taste and munificence of his predecessors had adorned them, with the expectation that they would be regarded as heirlooms to the nation in perpetuity, records that men of princely feeling had reigned over a civilized people. Mary's palace seclusion at this period of her life must have been a matter of notoriety, since one of her contemporary biographers, whose labors, and very laborious they must have been, consist of mere panegyric without incident, thinks fit, thus cautiously, to apologize for it. Though the Princess of Orange behaved with all possible condescension to the wives of the burgomasters and the other ladies, yet she never forgot her own high birth, so far as to enter into familiarity with them, it being regarded by her as an inviolable point of etiquette, neither to make visits nor contract intimacies with any of them. The narrowness of the circle to which she was thus confined rendered her recluse and solitary in her own court, and took from her a great part of the grandeur, state, and homage to which she had been accustomed in her uncle's court. How weary such a life must have been to a girl in her teens, accustomed to all the gaieties of the most fascinating court in Europe, and all the endearments of domestic ties, we may suppose, disappointed as she was, in all her hopes of maternity, and neglected in her first bloom of beauty, for one of her attendants, by her taciturn and unfaithful husband. No wonder that Mary's health gave way, and the journals, written by English residents at The Hague, prognosticated an early death for the royal flower, who had been reluctantly torn from the happy home of her youth, to be transplanted to an ungenial climate. Years, in fact, elapsed before Mary of England's home affections and filial duties were sufficiently effaced to allow her to become an accomplice in the utter ruin of the father who tenderly loved her. From the year 1680 to 1684, the events of her life in Holland, together with life itself, stagnated as dismally as the contents of the canals around her. All the evidence concerning her goes to prove that her seclusion was little better than the palace restraint which was called captivity in the days of her ancestresses, Eleonora of Aquitaine and Isabella of Angoulême. While this mysterious retirement was endured by her in Holland, life was opening to her young sister Anne, and many important events had befallen her. The Lady Anne did not accompany her father, the Duke of York, and her stepmother, Mary Beatrice, in their first journey to Scotland. Her establishment continued at St. James's, or Richmond. She bore the Duchess of York company on her land journey to the north as far as Hatfield, and then returned to her uncle's court. Whilst the bill for excluding her father from the succession was agitating the country and parliament, perhaps the first seeds of ambition were sown in the bosom of Anne, for she was generally spoken of and regarded as the ultimate heiress to the throne. Many intrigues regarding her marriage 
occupied the plotting brain of her childless brother-in-law, William of Orange. The hereditary Prince of Hanover, afterwards George I, paid first a long visit at The Hague at the close of the year 1680, and then appeared at the court of Charles II as a suitor for the hand of the Lady Anne of York. Although William affected the most confidential affection for this young prince, his very soul was racked with jealousy, lest he should prosper in his wooing. Not jealousy of his sister-in-law, whom he abhorred, but he feared that the ambition of the hereditary prince of Hanover should be awakened by his proximity to the British throne, if he were brought still nearer by wedlock with the Lady Anne. The case would then stand thus. If George of Hanover married Anne, and the Princess of Orange died first without offspring, as she actually did. William of Orange would have had to give way before their prior claims on the succession, to prevent which he set at work on a threefold series of intrigues in the household of his sister-in-law at the court of Hanover and at that of Zell. The Prince of Hanover arrived opposite to Greenwich Palace, December 6, 1680, and sent his chamberlain, Monsieur Beck, on shore to find his uncle, Prince Rupert, and to hire a house. Prince Rupert immediately informed Charles II of the arrival of the Prince of Hanover, and the king forbade the hiring of any house, but instantly appointed apartments at Whitehall for his German kinsmen, and all his suite, sending off the master of the ceremonies, Sir Charles Cottrell, with a royal barge, to bring his guest up the Thames to Whitehall. The Duke of Hamilton came to call on the Hanoverian prince, when he had rested at Whitehall about two hours, and informed him that his uncle, Prince Rupert, who had already preceded him to the levee of King Charles, and was ready to meet him there. George of Hanover quickly made his appearance at the royal levee, and when presented to the British monarch, he delivered a letter that his mother, the Electress Sophia, had sent by him to her royal cousin German. Charles II received both the letter and his young kinsman with usual frankness, spoke of his cousin Sophia, and said he well remembered her. When the king had chatted some time with his relative, he proposed to present him to the queen, that is Catherine of Braganza. Prince George followed Charles II to the queen's side, or privy lodgings at Whitehall, where his presentation to her majesty took place, with the same ceremonial as was used at the court of France before the revolution of 1790. The gentleman presented, knelt, and taking the robe of the queen, endeavored to kiss the hem. The more courteous etiquette was, for a little graceful struggle to take place, when the queen took her robe from the person presented, who, while she did so, kissed her hand. It was not until the next day that Prince George saw the princess on whose account he had undertaken this journey, Charles II presented him to his niece, Anne, the Princess of York, as Prince George himself terms her. At his introduction, the king gave him leave to kiss her. It was, indeed, the privilege of the prince's near relationship that he should salute her on the lips. Yet the fact that George I and Anne, so greeted, seems inconsistent with the coldness and distance of their historical characters, all this intelligence was conveyed to the Electress Sophia in a letter written to her on occasion of these introductions by her son. It is as follows from the original French, in which it is indicted with as much sprightliness as if it had emanated from the literary court of Louis Fourteenth. The hereditary Prince George of Hanover to his mother, the Electress Sophia. London, December 30th, Old Style. 
January 10th, New Style, 1680 or 1681. After wishing your Serene Highness a very happy new year, I will not delay letting you know that I arrived here on the 6th of December, having remained one day at anchor at Grumnevich, that is Greenwich, till Monsieur Beck went on shore to take a house for me. He did not fail to find out Prince Robert, or Rupert, to let him know of my arrival at Grumnevich, who did not delay telling King Charles II. His Majesty immediately appointed me apartments at Wythall that is Whitehall. Monsieur Beck requested Prince Robert to excuse me, but King Charles, when he spoke thus, insisted that it should be absolutely so, for he would entreat me and cousin, and after that no more could be said. Therefore, Monsieur Cotterell came on the morrow to find me out in the ship at Greenwich, with a bark of the king, and brought me therein to Whitehall, or Whitehall. I had not been there more than two hours, when my lord Hamilton came to take me to the king, who received me most obligingly. Prince Robert, or Rupert, had preceded me, and was at court when I saluted King Charles. In making my obeisance to the king, I did not omit to give him the letter of your serene highness, after which he spoke of your highness, and said, that he remembered you very well. When he had talked with me some time, he went to the queen, that is Catherine of Braganza, and as soon as I arrived, he made me kiss the hem of Her Majesty's petticoat. Quilon me fit, baser la jupe à la reine. The next day, I saw the Princess of York, that is the Lady Anne, and I saluted her by kissing her, with the consent of the king. The day after, I went to visit Prince Robert, or Rupert, who received me in bed, for he has a malady in his leg, which makes him very often keep his bed. It appears that it is so, without any pretext, and that he has to take care of himself. He had not failed of coming to see me one day. All the milords came to see me, sans pretendre, la main chez moi. Milord Gruet, perhaps Gray, is one that came to me very often indeed. They cut off the head of Lord Stafford yesterday, and made no more ado about it than if they had chopped off the head of a pullet. I have no more to tell your serene highness, wherefore I conclude, and remain your very humble son and servant, George Louis. There is reason to believe that the Milord Gruet, who was assiduous in his attendance on the Prince of Hanover, was Lord Grey of Ford, one of the most violent agitators for the legal murder of the unoffending Lord Stafford, whose death is mentioned with such naive astonishment by the Prince of Hanover. Various reasons are given for the failure of the marriage treaty between George I and Queen Anne. It is asserted, in every history, that William of Orange caused it to be whispered to the Lady Anne, that it was owing to the irrepressible disgust that the Prince George felt at the sight of her, an obliging piece of information which could easily be conveyed by the agency of the Villiers sisters in his wife's establishment in Holland, communicating the same to the other division of the sisterhood who were domesticated in the palace of St. James. The mischief took effect, for Anne felt lifelong resentment for this supposed affront. Yet there is no expression of the kind in the letter quoted above, though written in a highly confidential strain to a mother, instead of which he dwells with satisfaction on the permission given him to salute the young princess. 
it is more likely that Prince George of Hanover took the disgust at the proceedings of the leaders of the English public at that time, and was loath to involve himself with their infamous intrigues, for it is to the great honor of the princes of the House of Hanover that their names are unsullied by any such evil deeds as those that disgrace William of Orange. It will be found subsequently that the mother of this prince testified sincere reluctance to accept a succession forced on her and unsought by her or hers, and that her son never visited Great Britain again till he was sent for as king. In short, the conduct of the electress Sophia and of her descendants presents the most honorable contrast to the proceedings of William, Mary, and Anne. During Prince George of Hanover's visit in England, the Prince of Orange had kindly bestirred himself to fix a matrimonial engagement for him in Germany. When the prince had remained a few weeks at the court of his kinsman, Charles II, he was summoned home by his father, Ernest Augustus, to receive the hand of his first cousin, Sophia Dorothea, heiress of the Duchy of Zell. This marriage, contracted against the wishes of both Prince George and Sophia Dorothea, proved most miserable to both. The Duke of York was absent from England, keeping court at Holyrood, at the time of the visit of Prince George of Hanover. He had no voice in the matter, either of acceptance or rejection. Though the affections of the Lady Anne could not have been given to Prince George, for his person was diminutive, and his manners without attraction, yet she felt the unaccountable retreat of her first wooer as a great mortification. The little princess Isabella died the same spring, a child from whom her sister, the Lady Anne, had never been separated. Possibly she was afflicted at her loss. In the following summer, Charles II permitted the Lady Anne to visit her father in Scotland. She embarked on board one of the royal yachts at Whitehall, July 13th, and after a prosperous voyage, landed at Leith, July 17th, 1681. Her visit to Scotland has been mentioned in the preceding volume. Here she met her favorite companion, Mrs. Churchill, who was then in Scotland, in attendance on the Duchess of York. When the revolutions of faction gave a temporary prosperity to her father, the Lady Anne returned with him to St. James's Palace, and again settled there in the summer of 1682. In that year, or the succeeding one, she bestowed her first affections upon an accomplished nobleman of her uncle's court. There is little doubt but that her confidant, Sarah Churchill, was the depositary of all her hopes and fears relative to her passion for the elegant and handsome Sheffield, Lord Mulgrave, which Sarah, according to her nature, took the first opportunity to circumvent and betray. Few of those, to whom the rotund form and high-colored complexion of Queen Anne are familiar, can imagine her as a poet's love, and a poet withal, so fastidious as the accomplished Sheffield. But the Lady Anne of York, redolent with the heavy bloom and smiles of seventeen, was different from the royal matron, who adorned so many corporation halls in provincial towns, and it is possible, might be sincerely loved by the young chivalric Earl of Mulgrave, who wrote poems to her praise, which were admired by the court. Poetry is an allowable incense, but after gaining the attention of the Lady Anne in verse, the noble poet, Sheffield, proceeded to write bona fide love letters to her, in good, earnest prose, the object of which was marriage. Charles II and the favorite confidant of the princess, Sarah Churchill, 
alone knew whether the Lady Anne answered these epistles. Some say that Sarah stole a very tender billet in the Lady Anne's writing, addressed to Sheffield, Earl of Mulgrave, and placed it in the hands of her royal uncle, Charles II. Others declare that the unlucky missive was a flaming love letter of the Earl to the Lady Anne, but whichever it were, the result was that a husband was instantly sought for the enamored princess, and her lover was forthwith banished from the English court. Charles II rests under the imputation of sending the Earl of Mulgrave on a command to Tangier in a leaky vessel, meaning to dispose of him and his ambitious designs out of the way at the bottom of the ocean, but to say nothing of the oriental obedience of the crew of the vessel, it may be noted that Charles could have found a less costly way of assassinating, if so inclined, than the loss of a ship, however leaky, with all her appointments of rigging, provisions, ammunition, and five hundred men withal, one of whom was his own child, for the Earl of Plymouth was a favorite son of his, who sailed in the same ship with Mulgrave, the want of seaworthiness of the ship was discovered on the voyage, and whenever the health of King Charles was proposed, Lord Mulgrave used to say, Let us wait till we get safe out of his rotten ship. From this speech, and from the previous courtship of the Princess Anne, all the rest has been astutely invented. The consequence of the courtship between the Lady Anne and Lord Mulgrave was that her uncle, King Charles, and his council, lost no time in finding her a suitable helpmate. The handsome king of Sweden, Charles the Eleventh, had proposed for the Lady Anne, some time after Prince George of Hanover had withdrawn his pretensions. The beautiful and spirited equestrian portrait of the king of Sweden was sent to England, to find favor in the eyes of the Lady Anne. This portrait, drawn by no vulgar pen, is at Hampton Court. At least it was there four years since, shut up in a long room leading to the chapel. It deserves to be seen, for it presents the beau ideal of a martial monarch. Anne was not destined to be the mother of Charles the Twelfth. Her unloving brother-in-law, William, opposed this union with all his power of intrigue. The only suitor on whom he was willing to bestow his fraternal benediction was the Elector Palatine, a mature widower, a mutual cousin of Anne and himself, being a descendant of the Queen of Bohemia. The choice of Charles II for his niece fell on neither of these wooers, but on Prince George, brother of Christian V, King of Denmark. The royal family of Denmark was nearly related to that of Great Britain, the grandmother of Charles II, Anne of Denmark, being the aunt to the father of Prince George, Frederick III. And a friendly intercourse had always been kept up since her marriage with James I, between the royal families of Denmark and Great Britain. Christian V, when crown prince, had visited England at the Restoration. This prince had taken away with him, as his page, George Churchill, who was at that time but thirteen. It is possible that this trifling circumstance actually led to the marriage of Prince George with the Lady Anne of York. George of Denmark had visited England in 1670, when the Lady Anne was only five or six years old, for there was a difference of fourteen or fifteen years in their ages. At this visit, Prince George had brought George Churchill with him to Whitehall, for Prince Christian had transferred him to his brother's service as his guide and interpreter in England. From that time, George Churchill became an influential in the household of the second Prince of Denmark as his brother, John Churchill, afterwards Duke of Marlborough, 
was in that of the Duke of York. The Prince of Orange was staying at the court of his uncles at Whitehall, when George of Denmark was on his visit in England. What harm the Danish prince had ever done to his peevish little kinsman was never ascertained, but from that period, William cultivated a hatred against him, lasting as it was bitter. It is possible that, when Sarah Churchill traversed the love between the Lady Anne and the Earl of Mulgrave, she recommended George of Denmark to the attention of Charles II for the husband of the princess, as the brother of Mrs. Churchill's husband was already the favorite of the Danish prince. The long-sighted intrigant might deem that such alliance would strengthen the puissance of her own family at court. Be this as it may, the marriage between the Lady Anne and Prince George of Denmark was formally proposed on the part of the King of Denmark in May 1683. King Charles approved of it, but would not answer finally until he had spoken to his brother, the Duke of York, who, according to public report, replied, that he had thought it very convenient and suitable, and gave leave to Monsieur Lente, the Danish envoy, that the Prince George should make application to his daughter, the Lady Anne. In his journal, the Duke of York regrets the match, observing that he had little encouragement in the conduct of the Prince of Orange to marry another daughter in the same interest. William of Orange, however, did not identify his own interest with that of the Danish Prince, for directly he heard that he was likely to become his brother-in-law, he sent Bentick to England to break the marriage if possible. The orange machinations proved useless, excepting that the marriage was rendered somewhat unpopular, by a report being raised that Prince George of Denmark was a suitor recommended by Louis the Fourteenth. Nevertheless, the Protestantism of the Danish prince was free from reproach, and therefore there was no reason why he should find favor in the eyes of Louis. The Prince of Denmark had been distinguished by an act of generous valor before he came to England. He was engaged in one of the tremendous battles between Sweden and Denmark, where his brother, King Christiern, commanded in person. The king, venturing too rashly, was taken prisoner by the Swedes, when Prince George, rallying some cavalry, cut his way through a squadron of Swedes and rescued his royal brother. The prince had no great appanage, only about 5,000 crowns, from some barren islands, but it was considered desirable that he should remain at the court of England without taking his wife to Denmark. Prince George arrived in London on the 29th or 19th of July, 1683. That day, he dined publicly at Whitehall with the royal family and was seen by a great crowd of people, among others by Evelyn, who has left the following description of him. I again saw the Prince George on the 25th of July. He has the Danish countenance, blonde. A few words, spake French but ill, seems somewhat heavy, but is reported to be valiant. I am told from Whitehall, says another contemporary, that Prince George of Denmark is a person of very good mien and had dined with the King, Queen, and Duke of York, who gave the Prince the upper hand. This was in public, in the same manner as the court of France dined at Versailles and the Tuileries, where the people were admitted to see the royal family. The court will soon return to Windsor, where the marriage between the prince and Lady Anne will be arranged and completed. His presents, which are very noble, are presented to her, and their households will be settled after the manner of those of the Duke of York and the Duchess, but not so numerous. A chapter will be held at Windsor, 
for choosing Prince George into the most noble order of the garter. But the prince hath desired it may be deferred till he hath written to the king of Denmark for his leave to forbear wearing the order of the elephant, for it would not be seemly to wear that and the order of the garter at the same time. It is scarcely needful to observe that the leave was granted by the king of Denmark, who considered the request only reasonable. End of section 20